You know that we're going through kind of a lengthy biblical teaching series that's called There and Back Again. The purpose for this teaching series is relatively simple. What we're doing is we're exploring the connections between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament because it's important for our faith journey to understand some things about how the Older Testament works with the Newer. You know, this morning's teaching that I'm going to give is simply based on the idea of there and back again. That's that title for our sermon series where we took this from The Hobbit and we've been discussing about there and back again. But this morning I want to talk to you about how absolutely amazing Jesus is. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk to you about how amazing Jesus is. In order to do that, though, we have to understand something about the Older Testament. You see, in the Older Testament, you had kings and prophets and priests. To understand fully what the Newer Testament is trying to teach us about Jesus, I'm going to take some time to shed light on those three leadership categories that are found in the Older Testament. The idea of the kings and the prophets and the priests. At the beginning of the, or the outset of this teaching series, I talked about how many of us, as we are followers of Jesus or checking out who Jesus is, you might look at Jesus and go, you know, I don't really care what happened with Jesus before I met him or before the Newer Testament. Really what I care about is sort of the Gospels forward. And the illustration that I have utilized for that is it would be very similar if I, meet, I met my wife, Fran, we met in grad school, and I remember the first time I saw her, the Holy Spirit put two words in my mouth, hubba hubba. <laughs> now imagine me going up to her and... Uh, I think my first attempt at connecting with her was in the library. But you go up to someone and you meet them and then you get to know them and as you get to know them, all you care about is their relationship or who they are since you've met them and everything prior to when you've met them, you don't really care about. So my wife and I dated for over four and a half years. There's nothing spiritual about that. It took me that long to talk her into saying yes. And then we've been married for 26 years. So for over 30 years, I've been a part of my wife's life. Now, that's a long time. But can you imagine if all I cared about with Fran were those 30 years? That's it. Whatever happened before that, I don't count as relevant. Let me explain something to you. My wife is years old. That's how old she is. I've known her 30 out of those years. I've known her. There weren't a lot of years before I met her. Exactly. There weren't a lot of years that transpired prior to me meeting her for those 30 years. But can you imagine... 
I could not tell you how amazing Fran is if I did not know a lot of her story before we met. You see, in order for me to explain to you how amazing Jesus is, it's not just the 2,000 years of the Newer Testament, but literally the centuries and the centuries of biblical narrative that lead up to when you and I get to meet Jesus as He is born to us through the Virgin Mary. So with this, it's amazing in the Newer Testament how Jesus is presented to us very specifically. In order to get a handle on it, there's three things or three roles or three authorities or three leadership positions that are mentioned in the Older Testament that literally led the nation of Israel that are then applied to Jesus in the Newer Testament. So what I'm going to talk about this morning are those three roles. We're going to do it relatively briefly, and then we're going to take communion together, and we're going to celebrate how awesome Jesus is. But where you have to begin in the Older Testament is understanding kind of how Israel worked. Israel had kings, Israel had prophets, and Israel had priests. There were three different kind of positional authorities that made Israel work before God in the Older Testament. So what I'm going to do is begin with the most familiar we're going to begin with the king. So again, there are three positions. The king, the prophet, and the priest. But if we're going to understand how awesome Jesus is, we've got to understand these positions and what the Bible says about them and then about him. So the first one is the king. I picked this because it's the easiest and the most familiar. But what you may not know is is that in the Older Testament, God never intended for Israel to have a king. Never. And there's this incredible story that you can find in the Older Testament that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1-22. through 22. It's page 218, if you would like to utilize the Bibles that we provide. But what you'll find in this episode in 1 Samuel... This is where we're introduced to the idea of a king for Israel. And so, Israel's been moving along well. They have Moses as their leader. Moses was a prophet. He was called by God to lead the people of Israel, but the name king never was applied to Moses. The understanding of prophet was. So here what we have is, Israel is moving out of Egypt into the promised land, and as they're moving along, there's new prophets that begin to rise as God raises up men, and we're going to talk more about prophets in just a few moments, but prophets begin to rise up to speak to the nation of Israel. One of the most famous ones is a prophet by the name of Samuel. Samuel is a man that God raises up and fills with his word, and he's speaking and guiding the nation of Israel. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, something unique happens. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, you know what, Sam? We like all this prophet stuff, but what we want is a king. 
And the reason why we want a king is because all the nations around us have a king, and we want one too. Ultimately, if you were to read 1 Samuel chapter 8, here's what you discover. Really what Israel is wrestling with is envy towards Egypt. Egypt is the political, military, economic powerhouse that's in the world. And the king of Egypt is known as a, a pharaoh. And so Egypt, even though they've exited Egypt, Israel has exited Egypt, they're looking over their shoulder and they're envying the political structure of Egypt and they're envious of that show of public power and that public authority. And so they go to the prophet Samuel and they say, you know what, we'd like a king. And Samuel goes before God. You can read it in 1 Samuel 8, he goes before God and he says, God, listen, your children want an earthly king. And God says, you know what, Samuel, don't feel bad. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. You see, ultimately, God in his intent had prophets, but he would be the king of the Jews himself. But they reject that notion out of envy for Egypt. I have a quick question. As a follower of Jesus... Are there times in areas of our lives where we look at culture around us and we know what God calls us to, but we find ourselves wanting to or even putting trust in certain things outside of God's best and inevitably what ends up happening is when we trust in temporal things instead of eternal things, we end up coming back to God saying, God, I'm in trouble, will you help me? Well, God says to Israel, listen, through Samuel, he says to Israel, listen, here's what Samuel reports. He meets with God, he prays, he's their prophet. God says, tell Israel you can have a king, but just know this, your king will start out pretty well, most do, but it won't be long before the king's going to get hard-hearted and greedy. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He will take the best of your crops He's going to take the labor force and the economy and he will build for himself a kingdom. And so God says through the prophet Samuel to the people of God, the Israelites, don't do this. This is not what you want. But that undertone is envy for Egypt and the Pharaoh and the political structure and the economic might. That's what they want. So they look at Samuel and in essence they say, we'll take our gamble Let's do the king thing. And so the prophet Samuel picks a king by the name of Saul as God calls Samuel to define who's to be the king. Lo and behold, God's right. Saul starts out okay, but it's not long before it's an absolute failure and a catastrophe. And so what you find in the scriptures is that Israel does have a king, but God never intended them to be that way. And to have an earthly king, he's their king. Well, Saul ends up as a complete disaster. And in the midst of all of that, God comes to the prophet and says, now it's time for you to pick another king because Saul's a disaster. And so the prophet picks King David. Well, King David to this day is the beloved king of Israel. He's an absolute favorite of all time. He was kind of a renaissance man. 
He sang a lot. That's where the book of Psalms comes from. He had a lot of wisdom. Great guy. It says he was ruddy and handsome, and he was an incredible military general. Look, if you want a king, you got to have a guy like David. The problem was he was far from perfect. He had a little liaison with someone by the name of Bathsheba. There's stuff in his past. There was huge dysfunction in his home. But even in the midst of all of that, God comes to David and makes this incredible Old Testament prophet promise to him through the prophet. And the prophet says to David, David, there will come one from your line, from your family, and he will be a king forever and ever and ever. He will sit on the throne of Israel, and he will be all the things that you aspired to be. And because of that promise to King David, Israel, specifically at the time of Jesus, is looking for and longing for a king who would sit on David's throne and would establish them as a mighty nation by that time against the Roman Empire. They were so excited because this rabbi named Jesus showed up. He was the one that because of his miracles, Israel believed God was with him. And you and I have read multiple times around Easter where this king, King Jesus, goes on a triumphal entry into Jerusalem as all kings would have. But there's a problem. He's riding on a donkey instead of in a chariot. The people around him have no swords and no weapons. And he goes into the temple and he he confronts the corruption And they determine it's time to kill him. And as the Alleluia Chorus says, he is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. The problem is, his coronation looked like no other coronation no one anyone had ever seen. Instead of on a a throne with a crown filled with jewels, he was on a cross with a crown of thorns. You see, he's a very different king. He's humble, and he's gentle, and he's kind. And he did for the people what really should have been done. And he gave up his life so that people could come to him and find forgiveness and love and peace. Yes, Jesus was crowned as king, but it was a crown of thorns, and the throne was a cross. That was his coronation. It looks so upside down. But that's why I look in the rearview mirror and I declare that he is my king. He's my king. What I don't need is a military leader or someone to take my sons and daughters. What I don't need is for someone that will bully me around. What I need is Jesus, who is humble and gentle, and kind. Why is Jesus so amazing? It's because he's king. But he's like none other. Like none other. And he sat on David's throne. And he is ruling and reigning forever and ever. Amen. Then what you find in the Older Testament is you move from king to prophet. We've already talked about prophets a little bit 
But in Deuteronomy 18, as Moses is bringing the children out of Egypt towards the promised land, God comes to Moses and says, listen, Moses, I'm going to raise up prophets. I'm going to raise up prophets. And what do prophets do? Prophets prophesy. You say, oh, wow, that's a heavy revelation. Of course they prophesy. But I think what's important to understand is that prophets in the Older Testament would know things before they happened. They would know what was going to happen. They would know what God was about ready to do. And some of us sitting here go, that's cool. I would love to be a prophet. I would love to know what's going to happen before it happens. It's kind of like that movie Back to the Future, right? where the guy knows what's going to happen so everyone can gamble and get really rich because he knows who's going to win what fight because he's gone back into the future now. Sounds so cool and exciting. How many of you would like to have that gifting? You're wise not to raise your hand because the problem is is that there were kings, but there were prophets. And every king minus one had a prophet it would confront them when they were wrong. You see, what you discover in the Older Testament is, yes, the prophets knew what was coming, but oftentimes it involved them walking into the king's chamber, this guy who has total authority. And because God had revealed a message to them, the prophets would walk into the king's chamber and point a bony prophetic finger at the king and say, here's where you're wrong. Get right with God. Many of the prophets were killed. They were executed. And many of us would remember the famous story in the Older Testament where David had had his liaison with Bathsheba and things had gone horribly wrong. And it was the prophet who went into the king's chamber and confronted him about his sin and called him to repent before God. Ultimately, in the Old Testament, the prophet had a position where they would literally speak for God. And oftentimes, they would say this, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And again, it was often in the king's chamber. It was a check and balance of the power in the authority of the leadership of God's people. But what's amazing is, some of the kings also prophesied. King David was one of them. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't hold the position of a prophet, but he prophesied. And you can read about that in the Psalms, is the psalmist David as king could see into the future and he knew what was coming. And he even spoke about the Messiah about Jesus, about the one who would sit on his throne. So you had the prophets, the last of which was John the Baptist. He was the last prophet. The Newer Testament explains that to us. And his prophetic role was to announce Jesus, who was the king. What you'll also find, though, in the midst of this, is why is Jesus so amazing? Why is Jesus so incredible? It's because the Old Testament prophets, in looking at their role and their leadership with Israel, 
many of them began to write about the prophet. That there would be one that God would anoint and would raise up and he was known as the prophet. There would be a prophet that would enter into the life of Israel and when he did, he would be known as the Messiah. He would be the ultimate mouthpiece for God. Well, isn't it amazing that at the beginning of Jesus' teachings, as God began to use him, people began to introduce him as a prophet. Many people who met him would even say to him, I know that you're a prophet, but dot, dot, dot. You see, a prophet was something that was admired in Israel, but they were waiting for the prophet. The one who would arrive that would sit in that office and would literally speak for God. Well, here's what's incredible. When Jesus began to speak for God, he never once said, thus saith the Lord. When he spoke for God, he spoke as God. Big difference. He did not say, thus saith the Lord to Israel. He literally spoke as God himself. Jesus fulfilled the role of the prophet. And then last, but probably the most complicated for most of us, is the priest. You see, in the Old Testament, you had the king and you had the prophets Every once in a while, a king would prophesy, but he never held the office of the prophet. But then you would move to the other piece of authority that God had ordained, and it is that of the priest. In truth, the priest was the most spiritually important to the daily lives of the people of Israel. And the question would be, what exactly did the priest do? Well, most of you know. A priest was the intermediary between God and man. The priest was the one that was in the temple. And in the temple, the priest would make sacrifices for the people. The priest would follow rules. And he would literally stand between God and the nation of Israel. And he played that role of kind of being the intermediary, the one that made intercession for Israel before a holy, mighty, awesome God. Now, when you look at the priesthood, the apex of being a priest was if you were chosen by lot to be what was called the high priest. So all of the priests that were serving in the temple that had come from a specific tribe of Israel, as they served in the temple, all of them longed to hold a specific position. And it was the position of high priest. Once a year, one individual from the priesthood would be drawn by lot before God, and that high priest would literally step into the temple and when that priest stepped into the temple, he would make sacrifices for himself. Why? He's a sinner too. 
And so this high priest would make sacrifices for himself. He would apply blood to his own body, and then he would move into the temple. And as he moved into the temple, he would approach the main altar of God. And then there was a huge curtain that separated that inner court from the Holy of Holies. And once a year, one man, called as the high priest, would move around that curtain and would enter into the holiest of holiest places on earth. It was the inner sanctuary of the temple. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would make sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel would wait to see if God allowed him to live. And if he came out of the Holy of Holies and stepped out into the public, the nation of Israel would know that their sins had been covered for one more year. He was known as the high priest. But there's an interesting event in the Older Testament that helps us to understand the view of God. And it's this. There was a king in the Older Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He was named King Uzziah. King Uzziah, as king of Israel, listened to the description of him in 2 Chronicles 26.16. Here's what it says about Uzziah. But Uzziah became powerful. His pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and he entered to the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What's happening here? Kings were allowed to prophesy. But no king could serve as priest. God had eternally separated those offices of authority. He was allowed to be king, he could prophesy, but no king was ever allowed to be a priest. And so when Uzziah enters in to burn incense before the Lord, the head priest runs up to him and he begs him, Uzziah, please don't do what you're doing. But Uzziah was full of himself and he did exactly what God had warned the people of Israel would happen through the prophet Samuel. If you have a king, he will run you over. And Uzziah went in and he offered incense to the Lord. And that chapter tells us, as he lit the match and he held out the incense, leprosy struck his forehead. And the judgment of God came upon him and spread over his entire body. And although Uzziah served as king for 52 years, because of his leprosy, he was never allowed to be in relationship with people again, nor was he allowed to ever enter into worship in the nation of Israel. You see, God had said... These are the positions of power, king, prophet, and priest. But the three will never come together. They must remain separate. But here's what's amazing. There was a prophecy in the Older Testament in the book of Zechariah chapter 6 where the prophet looked into the future and he talked about something that all Jews had noticed. And here's what he said. Prophetically speaking, he announces to David that there will come a day when a priest will sit on the throne of God. 
and the people of God were longing for that day. Well, here's what happens. When Jesus is being coronated as king, and he is nailed on the cross, and a crown of thorns is placed on his head, the Bible says, at the moment of his coronation as he dies, that that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. And now all people were allowed to step in to the presence of God. You see, in that moment, Jesus Christ became our high priest. In that moment, Jesus stepped into the role of high priest. But he's not just high priest. Remember, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the prophet that spoke not for God, but spoke as God. Not only that, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is also our high priest. He's all of the authority structure of Israel brought together in one. Now, here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus Christ, because of what He has done for us, that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, here's what it tells us. That in like other high priests, He does not need to offer day after day for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Please understand what's being said here. Not only is Jesus king of kings, not only is Jesus the prophet, not only is he high priest, but Jesus as high priest became the sacrifice for our sins The entire Old Testament sacrificial system comes completely together in Jesus. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the high priest. He is the prophet. But he is also the sacrifice for our sins. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, After he made sacrifice for sins, he sat down. It is finished. It is done. It is over. Please understand this, that Jesus Christ is awesome. Why is he so awesome? It's because he's the king. He's the prophet. And he is our high priest. And all three of the power positions of the Older Testament come together in him. And in Him alone. Would you at this time hold the communion that you were given when you came through the door? If you do not have the communion emblems, I'm going to ask those that are serving us is that as you now stand, if you do not have the communion emblem, if you would raise your hand, they're going to come forward to serve you quickly. So if you do not have the communion emblem, please raise your hand as we will be taking communion together.
as we stand together. Here's what the Bible tells us. By the way, Ray, could you bring me one too, please? I know it's a long way. Thank you. As we stand together. Thank you. Appreciate that. I want you to know that as you hold the bread and the cup, you hold so much more than just communion. You hold the bread. It's a symbol that the King of the Jews gave up his body for you and for me. The cup that you hold had been prophesied about for thousands of years that there would be a prophet, the prophet, that would show up on the scene. And when he did, he would speak as God. He would literally be the voice of God. And then last, as you hold the bread and the cup, you hold the emblem, the symbol of the completion of the sacrificial system. In here, you have the broken body and the shed blood. But it's incredible to think that we do this in the name of Jesus. You see, he is our high priest. He wasn't just our high priest, but he literally offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. As the book of Hebrews tells us, the reason why he could do that is he had never sinned. He was sinless. All other high priests had to sacrifice for themselves because they were sinners. Jesus lived a sinless life. And as he steps towards Calvary as your king and as my king, as he steps towards Calvary to fulfill those prophecies of the Older Testament, he is the prophet. And he is also our high priest as he offers himself for us in our sin. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he said the following, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat, and do this in remembrance of me. As we hold the bread up before the Lord, let's thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. Lord, as we hold up your bread, we recognize that you are the king, that you're the prophet, and you are our high priest. And as we hold the bread up before you, we give you thanks for your broken body, which was broken for us. We take this bread now to remember what you have done for us. Let's eat together. Bible goes on to tell us it says in the same way after supper Jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me you see as we hold the cup up before the Lord the book of Hebrews chapter 7 tells us 
that the priests had to continually make sacrifice for sin. It never removed the sin, it just covered it. And there was constant sacrifice in the temple. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus shed his blood, it covers and removes all of our sins. And that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because there was no longer any need for the sacrifice of sin to be done. It was over in Him. Jesus, we hold the cup up before You. And in doing so, we acknowledge You. We acknowledge that You are our King. You are the prophet that all have been waiting for. But You are also our High Priest. And You are also the sacrifice for our sin. So we rejoice in You and Your shed blood. This cup is the atonement of our sins, not just covering it, but removing it forever, forever. Amen. Let's drink together. Could you with me just take a moment to close your eyes in God's presence? Jesus is the King and the Prophet and our High Priest. We no longer need anyone to stand between us and God. We can go to God personally through Christ who is ever making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Can we together just take a moment to worship Him, to give Him thanks, declare that he truly is the King of Kings, the prophet, and our high priest who was sacrificed for our sins. Let's sing this worship song together as we worship him.